everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. I am bringing to you today somebody that I interviewed in episode number six, Jalen, and this is a revisit episode. So it may be easier if you've already heard that episode or if you go back and listen to it, there might be some more context for for this particular discussion. But anyway, so hi, Jalen. How are you doing? I'm good, Rebecca. How about yourself? Very well. Thank you. And I do want to start off by saying yours is still one of the top two or three downloaded episodes on the whole podcast. And I know that it's meaningful to people. And I've had people reach out to me about that specific podcast that we did last year. And I've just been really looking forward to to visiting with you again. So thank you so much for being here and for allowing me to talk talk with you again on the podcast. That's great. I'm happy to be here. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you again is I think anytime you go through like something you went through or any time there's a life event like that, the the event details stay the same, but your experience of the event matures or evolves over time. So an example would be, you know, when somebody loses a job that day, there's a lot of specific feelings or concerns or a very negative experience. And then sometimes two, three, five years later, they look back and think, you know, hey, that they have a different idea of what that meant in their lives. And I think with aging parents, specifically after somebody has died, somebody's experience of being with them or or that period in their life also changes over time. And so I think something you could help us do today is compare and contrast your experiences today. But for, for anybody who hasn't already listened to episode six, can would you possibly just be able to give a, a thumbnail sketch or I can? <laughs> I I think I was still in the throes of dealing with caring for my mother after I retired, her increasing needs and the fact that I was angry. Does that pretty much do it, Rebecca? There you go. There you go. So a lot of what we talked about was you taking on the care of your aging mother. And by that point, your your dad had already passed on, if I remember. And yes, that you had a, right. And that you had had a brother who was financially supportive, but not necessarily hands-on, like with the caretaking. And that you had been in a period in your life where you had worked really hard through some really difficult jobs and a challenging career. And you were kind of at that point where you were going to retire. And that's where her needs really started to, to escalate up until she, she passed away just a few years ago. So that initial episode was spent unpacking your experience with her. And then at that moment, your reaction to, to that experience. So what would you say has changed the most in the year since we've talked? Well, I'd like to start and maybe back up a little bit and say, as I look back, that conversation with you, I think, was really the catalyst to start the healing because I was still so agitated and really still angry at the situation. And you asked some very probing questions, and it made me really think, and I do believe with all of my heart, it was the catalyst to start the transformation. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. No, because we haven't (laughs) haven't really chatted about it, but my brother and I have chatted about it for sure. And yeah. Yeah. So what's different today? One of the things that's different is that I'm not angry. And that's huge. 
And everybody's going, why would she be angry? (laughs) There's a lot of reasons to be angry. You're watching your parent die. It is a long, drawn-out, painful process to be part of. They're consuming all of your time. You feel like you're not meeting their needs. You're ignoring your husband and the rest of your family. There are a lot of reasons to be angry. And I'm not. I'm not. I've been able to really process and try to understand where she was coming from. And I've I've come to the place where I'm happy she's gone, not happy she's dead, but I'm happy she's not suffering. I'm not happy. I mean, that long downhill slide, and she used to say to me, there's got to be an easier way to die, which I think is a very profound statement, actually. But yeah, I'm glad she's not suffering. I'm glad the slide's gone and that she's at peace and I'm at peace. So I'm really, that sounds brutal and I don't mean for it to. No, I, but, but, you know, and it gets, it's culturally based kind of how we think about death and dying. And we are in a culture that is very averse to those topics in general. They're very taboo and, and that's not universal. That's just specifically in, and a lot of the the common cultures that we're in. And that's one of the, th- I, I was very thankful when we talked last year that, that you're so open and candid. And I think that helps people a lot. And along those lines, I was, if we could step through, if zero is angry and 10 is not angry, how did you get from zero to 10? I did a lot of thinking. I did a lot of, I'm trying to think how I should put it, looking at myself and what I did, what I could have done differently, and unpacking that a bit instead of holding it all so close. I had a role in the anger, and at that time, I couldn't see what the role was. And as I started unpacking it and doing some reading and thinking, I certainly had a part in that. And don't know that I could have done it any differently when you're in the thick of things, but it's very freeing to not be angry anymore. And one of the things I should have done is I should have asked for help. So I'm going to say that to anybody that's out there, that if you are carrying the load by yourself, ask for help. Just ask. You never, who may come forward and offer you a week where they will take over the appointments and they can be on call for a week. And I've learned it doesn't have to be a family member. There are people who would help. Have you shared your story with anybody else and they've come back and said, hey, I would have helped you or I wish you would ask me or have you had any of that sentiment come back? Yes. Yes. And a couple of people that I really admire and look up to and are friendly with, I wouldn't say we are friends, friends, but certainly friendly with, they said, I had no idea it was so difficult for you. If you would have asked, there would have been help. And I thought, really? Because I don't think you think of it when you're carrying it all and think, oh, I have this and this and this to do. So let's let's take a dive into, and I know it'd be hard because it's in the past, but 
the thoughts that you had, two or three thoughts that prevented you from asking for help? What were those two or three thoughts? One, we were smack dab in the middle of COVID. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom had moved here about 10 years before she passed away. And she had five pretty good years before her health started to decline. But I think when you're that age, you don't have the ability to make really good friendships. And so I wasn't aware of who of her friends would have stepped up. I didn't know in her friend group or acquaintance group who would step up. And COVID was really a defining factor. People were afraid. That makes sense. So you're afraid to ask somebody to help because you could endanger them or your loved one yeah. by having them participate in, in care. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it sounds like you went through almost like a discernment or a questioning type healing process. What were some of the questions you asked yourself? Why did I react the way that I did? Why couldn't I do things with a happy heart? Why was I resentful? And why was my mother the way she was? <laughs> oh, the big questions. <laughs> the big yeah. question. And I will tell you, and I would recommend it to anybody who's going through this process, is Brene Brown has a book called The Atlas of the Heart. And It is such a fantastic book about explaining emotions. In the book, there is a wheel that talks about the causes of depression. And um, I thought I was pretty well versed on what causes depression until you look at the wheel. And I hardly knew anything about it. But when I started looking at that and comparing those emotions and feelings to my mom. It was an eye-opening experience. And fear, I guess, is one of the things that stuck with me is fear is big cause of depression. And she was always afraid. She was afraid of what was coming next, what the treatment would be, if she had enough money, could she afford her medication? You know, all the things that I think many people who are I guess in their twilight years, I don't know how else to put it, think about, but we don't think they think about it because we think everything's okay with them. But that was huge. That was huge. There's a whole, and and anger, um, I'm looking at it right now. Helplessness was one. You get to the point where you have to rely on someone for everything. She gave up her car. And so she really did depend on me for everything. And I think that did lead to a sense of helplessness. That was big for me. The depression was big. And I would, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it this is probably a process that almost exclusively happens after the fact because you're so busy and engaged at the time. It's not like you can step away and reflect. Like, it's not like there's this, you know, a questioning and reflection that can go on when you're just trying to survive. You right? cannot. You cannot. And it it would be, you know, I've talked about my husband Ed a couple of times, but he would get up in the morning and say, okay, what what are you doing for your mom today? 
you know, it was rare that there wasn't something that needed to do. And I alluded to it before. Not only there were, were there appointments with physicians and testing and all that, but she needed a haircut, you know? Right. She isolated, wanted to go to lunch, wanted to go sit in the park or go look at the lake and have coffee. And as a human, it's very difficult to say no to those things. Right. Very Certainly for me. And then it made me, parts of the book made me really look at myself and why I was angry. Well, I was angry because I had loss of control. I had no say. Well, I could have, but I didn't feel like I did. Again, it was, there's that help thing that may have come in. But yeah, did I answer your question or am yes. I rambling? Yeah, no, this is fascinating for me. So, so it sounds like the it started the tool you used was questioning and the book that you've mentioned and then the action that sort of changed in your brain was it's almost like I don't want to use the word empathy that's kind of overused but identifying and understanding your mom from a different lens lent you a little bit more clarity or context for your experience of her or it gave you more empathy or more identification with her later? Or how would you describe that? I think that's pretty close. I, I think that's pretty close as to what happened. And in the midst of all of this, I had this overwhelming feeling one day of missing her, of wanting to pick up the phone and talk to her. And I had never had that before. And that was a strange feeling. And it made me happy. Made well, me I happy. got chills. I got chills when you said that because that that's because your brain is working differently. She didn't do anything differently, right? Oh, like she her did time not. on earth is is completed. And because you're thinking about things differently, you're processing things differently, now you get to have a different experience of her. Mm-hmm. And I missed her and I still miss her. And one of her greatest joys were my grandsons, were my grandsons, her great grandsons. And my son and his wife were so fantastic about sending videos all the time. And, you know, there's nothing more fun than naughty little boys who are two and four or three and five. And it brought her so much joy. And I was able to think about what a great gift that was from my son to her. And I didn't realize that till later. Any other insights that have cropped up? Other, so it's could have asked for help, but we kind of talked about some extenuating circumstances yeah. for that. Understanding her complexities, I guess, differently. Can you think of anything else that's popped up in the last year that has helped you process or get to a different mindset? Well, I wanted to be happy again, and I still didn't feel like I could be happy. And because so many people mourn the loss of their parents so deeply and for so long, and I didn't. And I felt a lot of guilt with that. And along with the guilt, I think it kept me from feeling happy in my life. And I was able to let that guilt go. I really was. And that was huge. How did you do that? 
what did you say to yourself that 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 the guilt released? Well, it was many conversations about how guilt controls us. And also with my brother, I had some pretty in-depth conversations with my brother, and he was processing some of the same feelings. So together, we would talk and bounce things off each other. And we finally just kind of went, this is crazy. This is crazy. We have to just let it go and understand we did the best we could. We did the best we could. So it was almost like you became the referee of the situation and you called it. <laughs> we did the best yeah, we could. Find out. And then you can move out. on because if you're still litigating it on the field, like, should I have done this or should we have done this? And what does this mean? Like that can hold you forever. That's it a purgatory. Can. And yeah, we had some really great conversations. But the other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is there is a lot of mm, guilt again about dismantling someone's home. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you mean as they're ill or after they've passed away or both, I guess? They've passed away. I would say that my mom did a pretty good job of purging old clothes and, you know, books, stuff like that. But she also hung on to a lot of things that she considered precious. And I did not see those as precious. I had no use for them. I didn't want them in my house because I knew they'd go to the basement and somebody else would have to deal right. with <laughs> But my cousin was here and she was helping me. And she had a strong attachment to some things that I didn't. And so there was that internal, what do I do? What do I do? But yeah, that was hard. Dismantling someone's home and their life is hard. And I don't care what anybody says, it is damn hard and fraught with emotion. Yeah. Any tips, lessons learned from doing that? Go slow if you can. I think if you want to do it in a week, you'll have regrets because you need some time to process things. I actually paid the rent for a month after my mom's apartment after she'd passed away. So I had time, you know, I had time. And the other thing is be kind to yourself. Just be kind to yourself. Don't beat yourself up because you don't like something or you're giving it to goodwill or whatever you're doing. It's simply hard. Hard. We had a well-loved church member pass away about 10 days ago. And yesterday I was talking to her daughter as she walked into church and I said, how's it going? And she goes, oh, you know. And I said, I do know. <laughs> and I said, Lori, be kind to yourself and take all the time you need. Yeah. So best advice I can give anybody is be kind to yourself and take the time you can. So let's talk about forms of kindness. So you mentioned time, which is not rushing through what right. was a big thing. Uh -huh. Um, you mentioned a, a cousin or, or a friend or somebody that's there with you going yes, through that these was things, important. Yeah. right? So kindness is, is having a community or a fellowship or even one person that is going through that with you. It's taking the time to do it. 
What about it's honoring? It's honoring too. It's honoring what happened and honoring possessions. And even as you part with them, it's kind of acknowledging and honoring what those possessions are. Right. And passing them on in a way that respects your parent. You're not going to, well, I wasn't going to dump them in the trash. And we have a great organization that supports the two homeless missions in town, and they have a thrift store. We took everything there. It felt like that's what she would want. Yeah. I also think you have to take a break. Have coffee. You know those things. Go get a massage. Whatever it takes to get you through the process, do it and be kind to yourself. That's what kindness is to me. I, I wonder also, I'm thinking of kindness to yourself also being a tolerance of whatever emotions or thoughts that are coming up, good or bad, instead of trying to decide how, what's the most healthy reaction to this or are pushing these emotions away or, or welcoming some other emotions. It's tolerating that your brain is going to have some static here. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like any given day, right? If it's going to be sentimental or resentment or like, where is it going to be that day and almost tolerating it instead of trying to micromanage and dial it in like every moment through a process like that? Yes, because you can have all of those emotions in the same day. Right. So I found, you'll laugh, I found a big plastic jar that had Metamucil in it in her closet. And I thought, what on earth? And when I opened it up, it was so full of $1 bills, I couldn't believe it. And there was a note that said to divide the money up and give it to her great-grandchildren for their college fund. Oh. It was pretty amazing. That is. It was pretty amazing. And that was a bittersweet moment because she couldn't do it. Yeah. So I'm going to take it to, to a larger kind of metaphysical level here. Okay. And so when we think about our experience of somebody in the brain, there's a couple of different components of that. So for you, it's your mom, but you can apply this to, to anybody. And so the brain's experience of another individual is formed by a appearances like you're appearing to me right now and my brain experiences you because i can hear you and i can see you and when somebody is alive the way that we have a relationship with them is through these appearances and the more they appear the you know usually the stronger that relationship is if they appear once in your lifetime you're probably not that close if they appear five times a day then you're probably very close so that person appearing to you is the foundation of that relationship but then you also create a relationship with the extensions of that person. And that is their their communications, text messages, emails, and then also their environment, their space, their things. And so you can walk into a home and experience somebody even if they're not there. Yes. Right? And sometimes even if you don't know somebody, you walk into a home, you feel like you know them by being in their environment. And the environment is such a critical piece of this. And so it's one thing for them to pass away which to our brain is the equivalent of they stop appearing to us. That's the biggest difference. Just from a neurological perspective, there are no further appearances from that person live, right? But then 
the brain always has people in context. You think of that person and you think of the way that they smell, the way that they talk, their mannerisms, their clothes, their environment, their things, especially if it's sentimental, like a grandparent or a parent. And so I think part of this grieving process is it just starts with the, the, the physical death of that person because then they're not appearing to you anymore. But then what you're talking about going through is unpacking the rest of your neurological experience of that person, which is their things, right? And that makes up who they are. What things do they love? What things did they collect? What things did they value? What things did they take care of? What things did they choose one or over, over another? And for a lot of people, their possessions are just a compilation of choices, which reflect who they are, what kind of artwork, what kind of furniture, what kind of baking supplies or whatever. And so I can imagine that it's almost like this layering effect in the brain of there's the, the, the death of the person, but then the death of their things. And as they kind of made up this entire, you know, little ecosystem in your head of whoever that person was to you, that you're, this process you're describing of going through the things is, is that second death, right? Of, of unpacking, I guess, whatever it was in your brain that you visualized as around them. Does that make sense? Or am I totally like? No, you're absolutely right. Because it was full of surprise. There were surprises and sorrow and sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Oh, sorry. You have you have these things that you're not quite sure what you should do with. That giving them away doesn't seem right, but you don't necessarily want them. And you're not you're just in this kind of vacuum of not knowing what to do. So you move it to a pile. And then eventually you have to go through the pile. And for me, the pile at the end, I think, was the hardest because then I knew I would take the keys, shut the door, and never walk in again. And that was very difficult. That was that was hard, was locking the door for the last time and walking away. Yeah. But as long as there was a pile, I had stuff to do. Right. Right. Well, and the brain's engaged in any kind of goal-oriented task. It's distracted. Yeah. And so it's in between those where you paused and then it's like this in- incredible emotional uh, amalgamation inside the brain. And it's just that push and pull. And that's what those phases of life are. And it's not temporary. I mean, as in like it's not a day or two, it's it's an entire process. And that's why I think it's so special. We can talk today because it feels it feels different. And I, and I, it, now we were talking about this, it reminded me of something. So Nana, who's been on the podcast a couple of times now, her second husband was a smoker and a drinker and had a hard, literally like race car style life and died in his late fifties. And I remember towards the end of his life, she kept trying to get him to stop smoking. All the doctors said, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. And he quit multiple times and after he passed away for years, she would find cigarettes all around the house. Oh, yeah. Stuffed in all these different areas. And at first, it was kind of this resentment. Like, they were hidden. I mean, they are hidden from her. They were hidden from the family. And then later, there's this empathy that, you know, you think about it differently, that 
this was it was a very hard thing for them to quit and that is so difficult that they end up you know resorting to these odd places to keep keep these items i don't know why that sticks with me as like like he it kept revisiting because she would just find them randomly in the home that she continued to live in after he passed away and almost like the little pieces of it but how she thought about those cigarettes changed the cigarettes were the same he was the same but the but the thought about the cigarettes changed over time I love your word empathy. I love it because I think that in one word, that would kind of sum up how I feel today. I have empathy for her. I don't know what she was going through in her mind. I know what she was going through on the outside and physically and all of that. But I don't know what she was experiencing emotionally inside. And I wondered, as I was thinking about things, what it was like to have an angry daughter that you had to see multiple times a week. Even though I was trying not to show my anger, I think that it can be hard to hide. Tell and me about the, that. What do, you, what do you think she experienced? Why do you worry about that? Were you short with her? Did, were you... Sometimes. Like, sometimes. And she would get in the car and say to me, what's wrong? And I would say nothing. And she goes, well, you look so angry. I'm not oh, angry. She, so she literally said that. <laughs> she said yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I remember one time so clearly, this is so bad. She was having a heart cath and we're in the bathroom and she's just acting like a crazy woman about it, about doing it. And I'm so afraid, you know, just really kind of out there. And I looked at her and I said, shut up. And I immediately felt terrible. And I said, okay, we just need to start over. I'm sorry I said to shut up. And we just need to start over. And we did. Well, she's back having the heart cath. And I felt so bad. I called my brother and said, I just told your mother to shut up. And he starts laughing. And he said, do you think I haven't told her that before? <laughs> and I thought his response was interesting, but I'm in my mid-60s at that point. Never in my life had I told my mother to shut up. And to me, that was an indication of, I'm done, I'm done today. <laughs> you know, I can't, can't deal with all this craziness. So, yeah, I think I have empathy. Okay, for- let me ask you a question. Sure. Might be an unfair question. So we're, we're you, if we're use the word empathy, I want to know how much you're, you were able to dole out for your mother versus how much you were able to dole out for yourself. Oh, I don't feel empathy for myself at all. None. You know, I'm still stuck, and I probably always will be, Rebecca, in that this is what you do. And... There's no choice about it. It's what you do. And I think I said before that morally I had to. And when I unpack everything, I'm really glad I did it. I'm really glad I did. Yeah, I'm really glad I did. And she always wanted to die in her home. And again, that was COVID. And we couldn't find 24 hour care. And so she was in a respite home 
but I spent the last probably 40 hours in the respite home and she didn't die alone because she didn't want to die alone. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty darn proud of that because I could have walked away. I mean, you can walk away. I probably couldn't have, but you could have. There were, there were no chains. There was nothing keeping me there other than I'd always told her she wouldn't die alone and she'd die in her home and I couldn't do the home. We just couldn't. But the other promise I did keep. Yep. So I wonder if we talk about this from the, you use the word healing at the, at the beginning, which is, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, it's worth pursuing if it, if the emotions afterward are very bothersome to you. I've interviewed a lot of people where the, whatever conditions that they're under, they don't even think about it anymore. And, and so that might not be something they pursue as far as like a, a healing process. But when we go back to that word, and and look at how adding empathy in our perspective of another person is still a way to at this point help ourselves and empathy is the the tool or maybe the vehicle to do that but the goal is with the life that you have right now as you mentioned is to be happy and to have joy and to to process things so if empathy was the number one thing that you feel like has been uh, accelerating your healing, can you think about a couple of other emotions or thoughts that have have gotten you to where you're at right now? Mm-hmm. Or, or can empathy... Okay, sorry, go ahead. Acceptance. Okay. Acceptance of the situation. And then really, acceptance of my role in the last few years of her life. And how that may have made things better, may have made things worse, but accepting that it wasn't all her, it was me as well. And owning that part of it and probably being, I'm going to use the word ashamed. I'm going to use that word maybe a little ashamed at times of how I acted, telling my mother to shut up. You know, that's not cool. Um, There were other times I could have done things better, and I didn't. And I think processing that, feeling the feeling of it, and then kind of letting it go, not holding on to it anymore. But acceptance of the situation was huge. And then deciding that I didn't want to be in that space. I wanted to be in a space where I could miss her, where I could think back when we were both younger and we went to Sun Valley for a weekend before I started college. You know, think about those fun things that happened instead of all the difficulty at the end. I wanted that. And I didn't have it. So I had to figure it out. Well, I think that's a, an intentional exercise for, for anybody in your life that you have some difficult relationship with or experience with is having the brain see them as the mosaic of all the different layers and times that they've been present to you and what that yeah. looked like. Because you're absolutely right. It's it's almost seemingly unfair that the last 5% of your life should define people's uh you know impressions of you or their what they take away i mean it should be a hundred percent of your life you know 
And uh, nobody would ever want to be known by their worst self, uh, worst version of themselves. Um, And a lot of times when you're in a position of being disabled or needing to rely on other people, you sometimes you go two different ways. You become the best version of yourself to attract the help or you become the worst version of yourself because you're so angry or yeah. uh, upset about your body. And maybe you, you kind of oscillate in between those two things, <laughs> the best and worst version of yourself. But listening to you talk reminds me, you mentioned Brene Brown earlier and mm-hmm. somebody kind of similar would be Byron Katie. And she talks about anger and she says, I felt angry. I identified my angry thoughts. I questioned them and then they let go of me. And uh, I know that sounds very, very simple, but a lot of this. Secret, but what a great way to describe it. Right. And so I can imagine that you experience anger and then you identify them. So part of that would be our podcast episode or talking to your brother or talking to people in your community. And then you question them. And the way that they leave is not by changing your circumstance or by the other person changing. And of course, after somebody's passed away, they're not able to change your circumstance. And the power in questioning and the power in releasing is really the only avenue to take a stagnant situation, such as a relationship that's already passed on, and continue to have it be a living or or, or movable thing. You know, because if we're all stuck with how we feel the first, you know, three or four days after this, then that would be terrible. We have to process through that. But the anger or the resentment that comes up, the the processing is is always going to be first the awareness and identification of the actual sentences that are running and causing that emotion. The emotion is not independent of those. And then once you've kind of got your fingers or your hands around them, and then you just look at them like you look at a phone bill. And be like, is this true? Is this is this what this is supposed to? Why is this phone bill seven thousand dollars? Like the curiosity of why am I experiencing it this way? And then once you question the thoughts and you sprinkle in, or maybe you're putting in more than a sprinkle of empathy, then your actual day to day experience it can change. And this is all something again independent of the other person. And a lot of times we pre- present or or think in our brain that that person needs to change for us to experience them differently. And the truth is, it's not that they need to change, or even worse yet, they're not going to change. It's that you have to be definitive about experiencing them differently if you want a different outcome. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast again is the way I view things is very different. It's, I would say it's profoundly different. And I can't imagine that there aren't other people in the world that were in a similar situation of anger and being pissed off and all of that. And you can't live there. You cannot live there because it will affect every other part of your life. And you can work through it. You can. I mean, I didn't get professional help, but there is professional help available if you need it. And, you know, I'm going to, my mom and I only had 16 years between us. My mother was a very young mother and I will be 70 in a few weeks. And so, um, I didn't want that for the next, however many years I have to live in that space. I just didn't want to. 
you know, we, you and I have a mutual friend. And I was talking to her today and saying, oh, I'm going to do another podcast with Rebecca. And she goes, what is it about? I said, it's about not being angry. And she goes, oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) because she was aware of how angry I was. And as I'm talking to you, I'm going to have to make sure that I share some of the things that were not anger. You know, some of the times, like, this is so crazy, but I was 15 or 16, and Seventeen Magazine was a big deal back then. And there was a prom dress that I wanted so bad, but it was in Chicago. So my mother made a pattern and made it for me. I don't think any of my friends know that. I I think that's an amazing thing that she did. They know I was angry, but they didn't know some of the amazing things that she did as well. And I need to share those. That's a that's a beautiful story. And it makes me something that you triggered in my brain was to, you know, because I work with a lot of geriatric patients, mm-hmm. is is they're angry too. And oh yeah. They are people, I mean, they're they're in a lost cycle themselves. Yeah. And and so you just amplification process because they're losing independence and agency and function and, and maybe even their own home. And then of course the person helping take care of them is losing their own time freedom or resources or flexibility. And so I think like when I'm I'm raising young children right now, and if they are acting a certain way, then I get angry or frustrated because I think they can choose better, right? They can make a better decision and Okay, maybe I should even like have a whole other podcast about that because there are some psychologists who would correct me and say they're also trying their best. But okay, in my <laughs> head, I'm like, yeah. you could have made a better decision and not put that thing there in the middle of a walkway or whatever. And we, I carry that with me and you kind of think that way, especially as a parent. And then if you're taking care of an elderly person, I think the transference is very strong. I really wish you just didn't need as much help. I really wish... You could just do better. I wish you could make better decisions. And to me, it feels very much that same sort of like mix of anger and judgment. And, you know, why am I getting pulled into what is a a you problem and not a me problem? And so I say that this is sounding very crass, but I say that that the assumption is like my kids aren't angry that they left something out. But an older adult who can't drive anymore and you're having to go pick them up they can have a lot of residual loss and anger and grieving. And we don't have a lot of services or even a culture that really helps that adaptation process. I mean, how many seniors do you know that are seeing a therapist because they're getting older? I mean, that's not like really a thing that you go to a therapist for. And so I think in the context of like being hard on ourselves for being angry the there's a lot that goes around in that whole situation, even if they're not showing it. And and I'll refer back to the podcast with my grandmother, and she told me this that she feels a, a lot of different things, but always says she's okay because she doesn't want other people to feel bad that she's not okay. But she is having a loss, right? And she is having difficulty. And so anyway, I just say this to the point of we've talked a lot about your anger. And I, I want to also acknowledge that part of this 
formula or this, you know, calculation here is that the person themselves might also have harboring anger about their own situation. Yeah, in that Brene Brown book, there is a whole section on anger and how anger plays into depression and some other emotions. And yeah, why wouldn't you be angry when you're aging and losing, not control, but you're losing bits of your life a piece at a time. You're losing your freedom. You're losing your independence. You're losing your mobility. Right. Not fun. Maybe, maybe we just proved our point, Jalen, why nobody wants to talk about death or dying because it's so de- the words are so depressing. <laughs> well, I think that we don't talk about it, and that's part of the problem as well. And I would recommend to everybody that starts caring for a pa- parent to read that book. Is it Being Mortal? Is that the title? Yes, it's amazing. It's an amazing book, and it puts a whole nother spin on the kind of care that you seek, the questions you ask, and what your goals are. Yeah. But, yeah. No, life is good, and I miss her, and I think that's really important. What a healthy emotion. That's right. To it, took a long, it took a long time. It's been two and a half years. And I would say it's only been the last few months that I can say I really miss her, but I miss her. Yeah. Any other insights, tips, tricks of the trade since we last talked that you feel like you can share? You know, it's I've said it before and it's kind of cliche. I'm sorry, but I think you need to be kind to yourself. I do. It's very difficult to be in the role of being the primary caregiver for an aging parent that is on the downhill slide, and you have to be kind to yourself. And I wasn't. I didn't carve out time for myself. And that's why I think it's so important. You know, you may not realize that this, but when we were, when I first met you and we were in Hawaii, and I met you. Uh huh. My mother passed away two months after that. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that. You know, I didn't think you did. And it was, I, I was, I, I, I was really, and the opportunity to go to Hawaii came up and I called my brother and said, I'm going, you're it. Don't call me. You just handle <laughs> it. And yeah. he kind of understood and said, okay, okay. But yeah. That gift, of, that gift of going to Hawaii for those 10 days was, could, the timing couldn't have been better. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm recalling back. I'm not sure we talked about your mom at all. Uh-uh. Because I was not going there. I was you were there. You not going there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was there to, I knew what was coming. You know, you know in your gut what's coming, you yeah. know. Yeah. And I was there to kind of rest and rejuvenate and relax to kind of go back for the last hurrah. I didn't expect it to be like six weeks, seven weeks. Yeah. But you never know. That's the other part. I This is, I, I'm like really into an, analogies and metaphors. And um, it made me think of this in medicine. There is the concept of pressure relief. So for instance, if the heels are resting at the edge of the bed and 
not moved for a long time, they break down and can yeah. become infected. But it doesn't take much to offload those heels for just a little while and you can reset it. And so we use that pressure relief as an actual medical order, like pressure relief on different parts of the body. And even if you create like a prosthetic limb, then you're doing pressure relief in certain areas. And it's almost the same concept that you're talking about. If you're just doing this constantly, just a little bit of pressure relief, even temporarily is a reset. And there's even like, you know, medical analogs here that if you don't do pressure relief, that skin will, like all the barriers break down, the skin breaks down, it becomes irritated and inflamed. And that's almost like our own lives. <laughs> like if we don't yeah. have pressure relief, then there's this irritation, inflammation that sets in. And, and that's just not a good path to be going down if you can help it. I guess my, my parting word is it does get better. Good. Get better. I like it your does. optimism. <laughs> well, it does. And it, you have to want it to get better. You know, you have to want that. But if you want it and you work at it, you can find joy again and understand what their process was and that you were a part of their process. Well, I'm not going to let you go without thanking you for a year ago, believing in the podcast and my project and my passions here and you reaching out and agreeing to be one of the very first I recorded a long time ago uh, meant a lot to me and your sharing and candidness and even now just hearing your process after the fact uh, is very inspiring to me and it helps me uh, keep keep invested and engaged and interested in, in this topic as well. So I, I just want to say thank you for taking that little leap with me when I told you I was going to publish it. And, and I just thank you for being a part of it. You are so welcome. And I believe so strongly in what you're doing. So anytime, anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jalen. I hope we can you see bet. each other in Hawaii again sometime. It me shouldn't be too. too. <laughs> me too. It was too. a great trip. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. All right. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.